Hello there, uh, you're listening to another audio essay. This one deals with another cheery topic, uh, namely Epicureanism and the problem of premature death. Just a quick reminder that if you enjoy listening to this, you can rate the podcast or review it on Apple or any of the other podcasting services you happen to use. And if you do so, that would be a great benefit or assistance to the podcast in the future. So without uh, further ado, I'll get into uh, today's audio essay on Epicureanism and the problem of premature death. Is it a tragedy to die young? Most people would say yes. When we hear of a 20-year-old dying in a car crash, we can't help but be struck by the tremendous sense of loss. They were deprived of a future. They didn't get a chance to do the things that make up an ordinary human life. When we hear of a 93-year-old dying, we are less perturbed. The death may be deeply upsetting to their family and friends, but the sense of loss is less profound. They had a good innings. They had a chance to make something of their lives. Although this is the standard view of premature death, there are those who dispute it. The ancient philosophical school of Epicureanism is probably the most famous example. Epicurus and his followers dedicated themselves to philosophically dismantling death anxiety. They argued that the good life consisted in attaining a state of ataraxia, perfect contentment free from all fear and anxiety, and that this could only be achieved once we rid ourselves of the fear of death. This, in turn, could only be done through correct philosophical training and reasoning. Now, I have covered most of the famous Epicurean arguments before. I have looked at Epicurus's claim that death is nothing to us because it is an existential blank, that is, a state of non-being in which we cannot experience either pain or pleasure. I have also looked at the Lucretian symmetry argument, which claims that the state of non-existence prior to birth should be viewed in the same light as the state of non-existence after death. Each of these arguments has its strengths and weaknesses. But one weakness they both share is that they don't address the problem that I introduced at the outset, namely the problem of premature death. If the arguments are successful, they may give us reason to feel more sanguine about death at the age of 93, but they give us no reason not to lament death at the age of 20. Different arguments are needed for that. The Epicureans were aware of this shortcoming, and they did have different arguments for the problem of premature death. In this essay, I want to review those arguments. I do so by following the excellent exposition of them in James Warren's book, Facing Death, Epicurus and His Critics. I'll start by considering the arguments that can be mustered in favor of the common view, namely that premature death is a tragedy, and then I'll look at the Epicurean alternative, considering some criticisms and weaknesses as I go along. As will become clear, my sympathies lie with the Epicureans, although I recognize that embracing their position has some costs. Now, to appreciate the dialectic that follows, you'll need to bracket one commonly held belief, namely that death is always and everywhere a bad thing. Nothing that is said in what follows addresses that concern. We're going to be focusing solely on whether premature death is a bad thing. The other Epicurean arguments address themselves to the more general concern about the badness of death. So you can take the following to be an exercise in suppositional logic. Suppose, for the sake of argument, that the Epicureans are right, and that death is not generally a bad thing. Are they nevertheless wrong in thinking that premature death is not a bad thing? 
The affirmative answer to that question can be defended in a number of different ways. One way, which I'll just call accumulationism, holds that pleasure and well-being is something that accumulates over time. In other words, the more pleasurable experiences you have, the better your life is. Premature death is thus a tragedy because it prevents the accumulation of more pleasures. The problem with accumulationism, in the present context, is that it implies that death is always a bad thing because it always cuts off the possibility of accumulating more pleasures. It's just as tragic for the 93-year-old as it is for the 20-year-old. So we would have to modify the position to make it relevant to the debate about premature death, perhaps by arguing that there is some quota of pleasures that a complete life would have, and if somebody dies before they meet their quota, it is a tragedy. The problem with this modified view is that it is pretty difficult to determine what that quota is. It is, after all, notoriously difficult to quantify and measure pleasures. The best we could do is come up with some rough and ready assessment, and that may not lead to the conclusion that death at a young age is always a tragedy. For example, a 20-year-old could live a life of intense and continual pleasure, while a 93-year-old could live one of perpetual misery. In that case, the 20-year-old would have the more complete life, they would have met their quota of pleasures, and their death might be less tragic than that of the 93-year-old. This is an important insight, and it's worth dwelling on it for a moment. It suggests that the debate about the badness of premature death is less about the number of years lived, and more about how they might have been lived. Has the person lived a full life? Adding more years, in and of itself, is not necessarily a good thing. It's the quality and content of those lived years that matters. This insight can be taken up by another way of defending the tragedy of premature death. This one focuses on the typical pattern of life, on what we might call its narrative arc. The complete life, we are told, passes through a number of stages. As Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man speech from As You Like It is probably the preeminent expression of this view in Western literature although it also contains a good degree of cynicism and pessimism. It tells us that the typical narrative arc of life passes through seven distinct stages, from puking and mewling in your mother's arms to sitting in a slippered pantaloon waiting for oblivion. Other stuff happens in between. Taking inspiration from Shakespeare, we might hold that the typical narrative arc to life includes an educational and training phase, a mastery and success phase, a relationship and family building phase, and eventually a retirement and relaxation phase, although some phases may overlap and run in parallel. The tragedy of premature death then arises from the fact that it prevents somebody from passing through all the stages of the typical narrative arc. To express this thought in more formal terms, we can come up with a simple argument, and it works as follows. Premise 1. Death is only a tragedy if it, if it occurs before a life is complete. Premise 2. A life is complete if it passes through the right narrative arc. Premise 3. A premature death is one that prevents a life from passing through the right narrative arc. Conclusion. Therefore, a premature death is a tragedy. Premise 1 here derives from the Epicurean supposition that death is not always bad, and from the preceding discussion of accumulationism. As you'll recall, the conclusion reached at the end of that discussion was that the total number of years was not really what mattered, but rather the quality and content of lived experience. I'm using the phrase completeness to capture that idea. I do so largely because it is the concept that James Warren refers to in his discussion of Epicureanism, 
and it is something that appears to have preoccupied the ancient schools of philosophy. Indeed, as we will see below, the Epicureans themselves accepted this idea that life had to be complete before it ended. They just had a very different notion of what made for a complete life. Now, the second and third premises of the argument are the ones that are critical to this particular claim about the narrative arc. What can be said about them? Well, the third premise is, in a sense, true by definition, since we have abandoned the notion that prematurity is necessarily a question of age, it now effectively becomes defined in terms of the incompleteness of a narrative arc. That's all that premise three says. It says that a premature death is one that prevents a life from passing through the right narrative arc. This means that premise two is carrying all the weight in this argument. This premise two is the one that claims that a life is complete if it passes through the right narrative arc. And I have two critical observations to make about it. The first is that the concept of the right narrative arc is incredibly fuzzy. I mentioned the Shakespearean view as an illustration, but given the pessimism and cynicism implicit in that view, we might question whether it really presents a compelling vision of the right narrative arc. If the idea is that one's life should tell a good story, then we run into the problem that there are many different conceptions of what a good story is. Tragedies can be good stories, after all. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's biography has always struck me as being a good story. He packed a lot into his short life, even though it contained a degree of deprivation and struggle, and he left quite a legacy too. Was his life narratively complete, even though he died at the age of 35? I've heard some philosophers who really seem to think that narrative arcs that tell a good story are what ultimately matter, and that you should work on making your life story as entertaining and interesting as possible. It's not necessarily bad advice, provided one bears in mind other moral duties, but it doesn't provide much guidance on determining when and whether a death is tragic. It allows for quite a lot of pluralism and individualism. We cannot easily say that the death of the 20-year-old is tragic on this view. We would have to carefully examine the narrative arc of their life and consider the story it tells. A second observation follows on from this. Someone who is worried about the excessive pluralism and individualism might try to impose a more objective and standardized view of what the right narrative should be. The right narrative arc, we might be told, is a life of threescore and ten years, which consists in a childhood of play and education, an adulthood of careers, relationships, and child-rearing, and a retirement of relaxation, travel, and family. The problem is that any imposition of a standard narrative arc will risk seeming incredibly parochial and historically arbitrary. The narrative I just sketched, for instance, is a relatively recent model of the typical life, and is something that is challenged and resisted by many. For example, why postpone retirement until old age? Why not take mini-retirements when you are younger? And why not look for more years? Furthermore, there may be people who can cram most of what we expect in a life of three score and ten into a shorter period. Imposing a standard narrative arc seems, consequently, like an unpromising way to shore up the argument. Now, these strike me as being significant problems for the narrative arc view. I'm not saying that it provides no guidance whatsoever as to what a complete life consists in, but I am saying that the guidance it provides is fairly limited. Furthermore, it doesn't enable the kind of resiliency in the face of death that the Epicureans wanted to inculcate among their followers. If your own preferred narrative arc demands a lot of years, if you want to fade away in old age rather than burn out at the age of 27, a premature death will indeed be tragic for you, but Epicureans wanted you to be prepared for death whenever it might come. 
So they needed a different understanding of what a complete life might be. So how did the Epicureans do this? Where they differed from the preceding view was in how they understood completeness. For them, completeness had nothing to do with tracing out the right narrative arc or accumulating a sufficient quota of pleasures. It had to do with achieving the right kind of contentment in life. Once you achieved that state of mind, your life would be complete and there would be no reason to lament its cessation. Lucretius used some nice metaphors to explain this idea. To quote, For if you have enjoyed the life you have led up until now, and you have not allowed all those benefits to flow away and be lost without enjoyment, as if poured into a broken pot, then why do you not leave like a diner, fed full of life, and find secure rest with an untroubled mind? That's from Lucretius, uh, De Rerum Natura. Why indeed? Uh, why can we not be fed full of life and leave the feast with untroubled minds? Now, there's a lot actually going on in this quote, a lot of philosophical commitments that are not fully stated, and it's important to try and bring them to the surface. So here's my attempt to set out the logical structure of the Epicurean view that's implicit in that quote from Lucretius. And this re reconstruction is supplemented by other Epicurean writings. So to put it in formal terms, and this is going to be a little bit complex, premise one, the sole dimension of value in life is pleasure, or to put it another way, the completeness of life is to be determined by its pleasurableness. Premise two, true pleasure is catastomatic and not kinetic in nature. Premise three, catastomatic pleasure does not accumulate over time, it only varies. Interim conclusion, therefore, once catastomatic pleasure has been achieved, a life cannot be improved by adding more years to it. Second conclusion, Therefore, a life of catastomatic pleasure is complete. And final conclusion, therefore, death, after catastomatic pleasure has been achieved, is not a tragedy. Now, as I say, there's a lot going on in this argument, so let's try and go through it in some detail. So the first premise there, that the sole dimension of value in life is pleasure, that is a key commitment of the Epicurean view. Now, you might dispute it. It certainly feels a bit off to me. I think that there's more yeah, to life than pleasure alone. That there are more dimensions of value at stake. Uh, so, for example, I think that there are moral and scientific values that have nothing to do with pleasure per se. And so there is a dimension of value to life that seems to be obscured to the Epicureans. On the face of it, it seems like they're tying themselves to a very crass form of egoistic hedonism. But it actually becomes a little bit less crass when we consider their definition of pleasure from premise two, which states that true pleasure is catastomatic and not kinetic in nature. But the egoism doesn't go away completely. And this is something that gets Epicureans into trouble at other times. Uh, so, for example, actually, James Warren in his book, in the last chapter of it, he discusses whether it makes sense for Epicureans to write wills. So Epicurus himself famously didn't write a will. And he argues that it doesn't make sense to write a will if you remain committed to egoistic hedonism. Now, I tend to agree with this critique, and so I think that a revised form of Epicureanism, shorn of its staunch egoism, would be preferable. All that said, I don't think that the debate about egoism versus non-egoism should detract from the more important aspect of the Epicurean argument, namely that achieving the right kind of pleasure could be critical when it comes to addressing the fear of premature death. I think the strength of that claim is relatively undisturbed by the debate over egoism. 
And that's also then where the second premise comes in. Now, the language used in this premise will be unfamiliar to most people listening to this. So the Epicureans draw a distinction between two kinds of pleasure, catestomatic pleasure, which is the pleasure that arises from the absence of pain, want, or need in life. So it's kind of a feeling of contentment and equanimity. And then there's kinetic pleasure. That's pleasure that arises from removing pain or satisfying need. That's the kind of pleasure that arises from filling the broken pot, to use Lucretius's metaphor. Now, the distinction here is perhaps subtle, but it's significant. Catestomatic pleasure is enduring and is akin to an ongoing feel of satiation. Kinetic pleasure, on the other hand, waxes and wanes. You remove some pain, you satisfy some need, and you feel pleasure for a while, but that feeling quickly dissipates. A new pain or need arises that has to be addressed, and you get trapped in a kinetic loop, constantly seeking out new highs. And this means that you can never be truly happy or satisfied with what you have. So the Epicurean idea is that true pleasure requires greater stability of contentment. So what's more, if you do get trapped in a kinetic loop, death will always be a tragedy for you, whether you are 20 or 93. And so Lucretius again describes this problem pretty well. He says, because what you want is always at a distance, you shun what is at hand. Your life has slipped away, incomplete and unenjoyed, and death stands by your head unexpected before you can leave things satisfied and full. So the real challenge is to get out of this loop of seeking kinetic pleasures. But how do we do it? Epicureans aren't too helpful on this front. Um, They seem to think that proper study and familiarity with their philosophical teachings, as opposed to some meditative or ritual practice, will suffice. Now, this is something that differentiates them from, say, the Buddhists and the Stoics, who have a similar attitude towards death and the good life, but include meditative and ritual practices as a key part of the effort to attain equanimity, that catestomatic pleasure. Now, but we're not really looking for practical guidance here. We're trying to investigate the logic of the Epicurean argument. So assuming that the distinction between catestomatic and kinetic pleasure is accepted, we need to move on to the next premise of the argument. Premise three, which claims that catestomatic pleasure does not accumulate over time. In other words, it claims that your life doesn't get more pleasurable by having more moments of catestomatic pleasure. Now, this might look like an odd thing to say. Surely somebody who has lived for 10 years in a state of catestomatic pleasure would be better off than somebody who only did so for a few hours. But it actually does make a certain amount of sense. The state of catestomatic pleasure is defined by the absence of certain qualities, the absence of pain, want, and need, and not by the presence of other qualities like joy, mirth, or laughter. It is, in a sense, a zero state, one in which harmony and balance has been achieved. As such, it makes sense to say that catestomatic pleasure is not something that gets better the more that you have of it. Indeed, one of the defining characteristics of catestomatic pleasure is the absence of the desire for more. That said, the Epicureans acknowledge that catestomatic pleasure could vary over time. You could experience slightly different forms of it in different contexts. However, this variation by itself did not make your life better. Now, James Warren thinks that there are certain problems with this idea of catestomatic pleasure and that it does not accumulate. And the obvious one is this. 
Suppose you do achieve a state of catastomatic pleasure. Does that really mean that death, no matter how soon after the state has been achieved, is never a tragedy? What if death comes two seconds after such a state has been achieved? To say that death at this point is not bad or premature seems logically obtuse. And indeed, it was something that the Epicureans resisted. As Warren notes in his discussion, many of them appear to have adopted a moderate stance, according to which some reasonable period of time in a state of catastomatic pleasure was required, perhaps just enough to show that it was a stable state and not a fleeting one. But if you include such a requirement, the argument outlined above would need to be modified to talk about achieving a state of stable catastomatic pleasure or a reasonable period of catastomatic pleasure. And so it wouldn't follow that, you know, just achieving a state of catastomatic pleasure meant that your life was complete and that you could die after that and it would not be a tragedy. If you accept that catastomatic pleasure is true pleasure and that once attained, for a reasonable period of time, it cannot accumulate, then it is plausible to infer that your life is complete, that it is not going to get any better by adding more years, and then the rest of the argument might succeed. Death, once catastomatic pleasure has been achieved, cannot be a tragedy, and this gives us some guidance on how we should react to the death of a young person. We should always ask, did they achieve catastomatic pleasure? Were they content? Were they free from want, need, and anxiety? And that will determine the tragedy of their death. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, I am sympathetic to the Epicurean view. But there is some wishful thinking in this sympathy. There is a sense in which I want to believe it, because it tries to prepare us for and reassure us about the inevitability of death. Given that we are all going to die, and it is worth noting that I think this is always going to be true, even if we manage to greatly extend our lives through the use of science and technology, it makes sense to face its reality. Epicureanism is one of the few philosophies that doesn't deny or ignore death and tries to offer some solace or consolation in its face. So it would be nice if it were philosophically tenable. Furthermore, I think the Epicureans do get something fundamentally right in their understanding of true pleasure. It is dangerous to be trapped on a hedonic treadmill, constantly seeking more and more pleasurable experiences. If you do that, you will never be satisfied. Admittedly, the Epicureans aren't the only school of thought to make this point, but I appreciate their way of framing it and this distinction they draw between kinetic pleasure and catastomatic pleasure. That said, there are costs to accepting the Epicurean view. For one thing, an Epicurean life would not appear to be a recognizably human life. If we were all fully committed to achieving catastomatic pleasure, and completely inured to the idea of our own deaths, it seems like we would have to become remarkably detached from the ordinary pleasures of life. The narrative arc view, outlined previously, at least has the benefit of working with, and not against, widely held beliefs about what makes for a good and complete life. Engagement with the world, with other people, with family and friends, with ambition and hope, and so on. The Epicurean life seems to warn us against these things. If we become too attached to worldly affairs, we risk losing the requisite equanimity and contentment we need to avoid death anxiety. As an illustration of this, Epicurus famously urged all his followers to withdraw from political life. So at the very least, Epicureanism would seem to require a significant shift in our attitudes towards worldly affairs. Maybe we could do some of that and still make up a recognizably human life? 
but we would have to perform our activities with a little less vim and vigor and maybe a little bit more philosophical distance. This is a criticism that has often been targeted at similar philosophical positions such as Buddhism. Furthermore, there are paradoxes and tensions in the Epicurean view. As we have just seen, Epicureans do actually believe in the idea of a premature death and that a premature death can be a tragedy. They just happen to have a very different understanding of what prematurity involves. Their understanding makes sense given their other beliefs, and it is philosophically consistent, but it doesn't completely eliminate all anxiety about premature death. There is still a tragedy of dying before catastomatic pleasure has been attained. Now, James Warren thinks that this leads to something of a paradox for the Epicurean. On the one hand, they think that the key to living a pleasurable life is to rid oneself of death anxiety. And on the other hand, they seem to imply, through their analysis of premature death, that death anxiety is rational before you have attained true pleasure. And so there is a chicken and egg quality to this. You need to rid yourself of X to have true pleasure, but X is rational before attaining true pleasure. There may be some ways to resolve this. Perhaps some people are lucky enough never to have experienced death anxiety, and so can achieve Epicurean equanimity before the problem arises. Also, perhaps you can rid yourself of death anxiety indirectly, i.e. not through rational philosophizing, but through some kind of meditative practice. But this is not something that the Epicureans themselves seem to have endorsed. In any event, it seems like more work needs to be done on the implications of Epicureanism for the rest of one's life, for the capacity to live a recognizably human life. But for now, I'll just conclude by saying that I still find something attractive about the Epicurean idea, despite the complex re-evaluations of life that it entails.